Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Look, I understand that what you're going to be hearing from me is probably new to a lot of you because you grew up in a tradition. And as we talked last week, the tradition started in 1833 when John Nelson Darby, who by all accounts meant well, uh, decided that he had figured the Bible out and he put together all of his notes and, and um, he began to try to preach all these notes and, and um, he started a conference in Niagara Falls, New York and they got picked up by a guy in Texas named Schofield and they became the notes of the Schofield Bible and it became very popular and then in 1970 based on those notes in the Schofield Bible a guy by the name of Hal Lindsey wrote a book, little book called The Late Great Planet Earth. It became the best-selling nonfiction book of the 70s then in the 1990s, a couple of guys, good guys, again, Jenkins and LaHaye, took that book and novelized it into Left Behind. Now, as I said last week, I know that this is the air you all have breathed. This is the most popular view of the end times of the book of Revelation among Christians in North America. It's largely just North America, by the way. Um, but the problem is, as I said last week, Darby came up with his scheme of a one-world government and an antichrist and, a, and a seven years of tribulation and a rapture 1,800 years after Christ. 1,800 years. You cannot find a mention of the rapture anywhere in church history for 1,800 years. And it's not that people weren't looking. The problem is, as, and once we get through with the book of Revelation, you're going to notice a couple things that if you haven't read it or you haven't read it in a while, is going to surprise you. The first thing is, there's no rapture in the book of Revelation. It's not there. Second thing you're going to find is, there is no mention of an Antichrist. Zero. It's not there. It's just not there. And as I said last week, it was, it was a shock to me. I assumed that's just the way it was until I took my first seminary class in the book of Revelation and I had to study the history of its interpretation and realized that for 1,800 years, the church did not interpret the book of Revelation that way at all. And then when I really began to study it, it became very clear that the book of Revelation was not written for 2,000 or 3,000 years in the future or whatever, it was written for the people the Apostle John knew very well. The Apostle John was exiled to a little island called Patmos. Now, there were different ways that Romans could be exiled. They could be just sent off and say, go away and don't come back until we say you can come back. Or they could be sentenced to hard labor. We don't know which exile John got. We don't know. We do know that one day and sometime, 64 A.D., that John is worshiping, probably an early Sunday morning as the sun was coming up, and Jesus appears. And he says to John, I'm going to show you what must soon take place. What is near? As I said last week, in Greek, soon means soon. And near means near, not 2,000 years later, near. And so in 64 AD, what was going on, the reason Jesus showed up to show John what was going on is the church was about to be persecuted like it had never been persecuted since, and in some ways has not been persecuted since then either. The king of the Roman Empire, the Caesar, as they called him, was Nero. Nero was accused of burning Rome to the ground. He was accused of burning Rome to the ground because he burned Rome to the ground. He burned Rome to the ground because he wanted to rebuild it in his image. 71% of the city burned. The Romans blamed him, and he knew he was in trouble because when Caesars got blamed for stuff, they tend to end up dead. So he needed a scapegoat. Now, Nero just happened to be buddy-buddy 
with the temple leadership in Jerusalem. As I said last week, the reason for that was that Nero's first wife, Octavia, who loved and was fascinated by the Jewish religion, took Nero to see basically what we would call a palm reader. And he asked the palm reader, will I continue as Caesar or will I lose my empire? And this fortune teller said, if you lose your empire, you will become king again. You will become king in Jerusalem. Now, all of a sudden, Nero really likes the Jewish people because he thinks he could be their king one day and rule from the temple in Jerusalem. Now, during this time, from the time of Christ all the way through 64 and beyond, the Jewish leadership in the temple had already been persecuting the Christian church. If you've read the book of Acts, you've seen this. It was the temple leadership, the high priest, etc., who conspired to kill Jesus, right? The temple leadership, then, after the resurrection of Jesus, kills Stephen in Acts 7, stone him to death. They then kill James, the brother of John. They send a guy named Saul, who you know as Paul, out to arrest and kill Christians. But Paul ends up being converted. So, they try to kill Paul. This is what the Jewish leadership was doing, and they continue to do it. About 29 years after Jesus was resurrected, they took Jesus' brother James, who had become very popular. In Jerusalem, he was known as James the Just. The temple leadership was so jealous of Jesus' brother, they had him kidnapped, taken to the top of the temple, and they threw him off of it. He somehow managed to survive, but he was a crumpled mess of broken bones. So, the priest's loyal temple guard proceeded, while James, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, while he was whispering prayers in pain for those who had kidnapped him and tried to kill him, while he was whispering prayers, they proceeded to stone him to death on the streets of Jerusalem. So the Jewish leadership had had it out for Christians from the beginning. But now, Nero, their buddy, who they really liked, despite the fact that he was a narcissistic sociopath, needed a scapegoat for the fire in Rome. He blamed the Christians. Now, it shouldn't shock you if you knew anything about Nero. It won't shock you as to the depths of depravity that he would go. Nero, his mother, poisoned his adopted father so he could become Caesar. She thought her young son would take orders, and she could rule through him. But, as some of you who have been in law enforcement or have worked in mental health know, narcissistic sociopaths don't take direction well. So, he had her killed. After he had had, how shall I put this, relations with her. He then exiled his first wife, Octavia, had his brother killed, had his aunt killed, and in a drunken rage, stomped his second wife to death while she was pregnant with their child. After he sobered up and realized what he had done, and he kind of missed her, one day he noticed a young boy that looked like her. He had the young boy kidnapped, castrated, dressed as a woman, and he called her by his dead wife's name for the rest of his life. This was Nero. Is it any wonder that the philosopher, one of the most popular philosophers of the day, simply referred to him as the beast? 
there's more. How do we know Nero is the beast of Revelation? John tells us that he has a number, a human number, 666. This is a form of what they called Hebrew gamatria. It was kind of a superstition. They would take your name, put it into Hebrew, and then they would give numbers. The Hebrew letters had numbers. And they would add up to see what the number of your name was. 666 in Hebrew equals Caesar Nero. More than that. John says the beast has seven heads representing seven kings or seven emperors, seven Caesars. Five, he said, have fallen. One is, which means that one's ruling. One will reign shortly. Will reign, but will reign for a short time. Well, let's count. Seven. The sixth is the one that is. First Caesar was Julius Caesar. The second was Caesar Augustus, his adopted son. The next was Tiberius. Then Caligula. Then Nero's adopted father, Claudius, and then Nero, the one who is. The seventh was Galba, who would take Nero's place but would reign for less than six months before he was assassinated. This is part of what John means when he says this is a prophecy. He is saying what will happen. So Nero, along with the temple leadership in Jerusalem, conspired together for the first time from six, for about three and a half years, the end of 64 to about the middle of 68 A.D. It was hunting season on Christians. One Roman historian says that we can't count the number Nero killed. And he did not just kill them. He humiliated them. He would have them crucified. He would have them beheaded. He crucified Peter. He beheaded Paul. Others he had burned alive. Or fed to starved animals in his circus. Some of them that he would set alight, he used as torches in his own garden. He thought that was funny. He liked to get drunk, put on a bearskin rug on top of himself, have Christians tied up, and act like a hungry bear and bite chunks out of their genitalia. That was Nero. As I said last week, Revelation is what's called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature was very popular literature among Jews and Christians. Every time somebody sat down to write a piece of apocalyptic literature, it meant the heat was coming. Something bad was happening or about to happen. And the writer of the apocalypse is given the mission of showing that despite how bad things are, God is on his throne, he has a plan, and his plan is always accomplished perfectly. But number two, Revelation is a letter. We'll see this in a couple weeks when we get to Revelation 2. It is a letter to seven churches in what they call Asia. Today we call that Turkey. Why those seven churches, we'll talk about when we get there. And it also, Revelation is, as I said, a prophecy. A prophecy on many levels. What's about to happen to the Christians, but also what's about to happen to those who persecute the Christians. Now, when I say this is a letter prophecy, it is not just a point in which Jesus shows up and tells John, these things are about to happen. I'm going to show you these visions, and these things are about to happen. And again, both in Revelation 1 and in Revelation 22, at the beginning of the book and the end of the book, it says these things must happen soon. And indeed, within months of John writing this, all you know what breaks loose. 
But John had heard some of this before. And in a minute, we're going to look at some Old Testament passages. We're also going to look at a couple places in the New Testament, like Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Because in those passages, Jesus talks about exactly what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. And John was there. John heard it. Now, I meant to have a handout for you. I did not get time to pull it out. One of the things that you're going to find as we work through this, including today, there are going to be times when you're looking at your English Bible and you're going to say, that's not what it says. There's a reason for this. I did put some of it in your bulletin, not as much as I wanted to. I wanted to have a separate insert. But here's something you need to understand. The book of Revelation did not fall out of the sky in King James English, leather-bound with a nice little ribbon in the middle of it. The book of Revelation was written in Greek, ancient Greek. People like me, dumb enough to go to graduate school for this stuff, have to learn ancient Greek. And the problem with ancient Greek is this. Greek words do not have one meaning. They typically have several meanings, which is, to say the least, frustrating. So, for example, little Greek word, teeny tiny little Greek word, two letters, gamma, eta. You pronounce it, ge, ge. It can mean the earth, the whole earth. But it could also just mean a piece of land on the earth. How do you know? You, sometimes you have to guess. Sometimes you have to look at it and go, well, earth doesn't make any, world doesn't make any sense there. Earth doesn't, so it's got to mean land. And indeed, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, again and again and again and again, it doesn't say Israel, it says the land. And whenever it says the land, it means Israel. Because that's how the Jews refer to it, the land. The word ethnos can mean nations. Nations. But it can also mean Gentiles, non-Jews. Atos. Atos, some of your English translations, when we get to Matthew 24, will say where the corpses are, there the vultures are, will be. And you'll be like, well, that makes sense. There's one problem. Atos typically doesn't mean vultures. It means eagles. What does that mean? We'll get to that in a second. Because first and foremost, well, one problem we have, the Romans actually thought vultures were a kind of eagle. I own, the Greek word I own, where we get the English eon, I own. I own can mean eternity, or it can mean a set period of time. Which one? You got to look at context. It's not easy. I had... <laughs> A guy who sat in Greek class with me when I was in seminary, Shane Alexander. I probably shouldn't say that since this is going online. Oh, he's my Facebook friend. He may not be after this sermon. But anyway, Shane, Shane sat in front of me in Greek. And Dr. Osborne, who was a rough, rough fella, got a man named Carol Osborne from Conway, Arkansas. You ever heard the song, A Boy Named Sue? Yeah, a boy named Carol from Arkansas gets just as tough. And Dr. Osborne, we'd be reading through the Greek New Testament, and we'd say, Dr. Osborne, does it mean this, or does it mean that, or does it mean this? Like the little Greek word host has about eight different possibilities. So Dr. Osborne, what does it mean? And he'd look at us down spectacles. He goes, I don't know. 
Figure it out yourself. And Shane, sitting in front of me, turned around. I can't repeat exactly what he said. He was not fully sanctified yet. But he basically said, I get blankety-blanked at those idiots at the Tower of Babel more each day. If it weren't for those morons, we'd have one language and not a bunch. So when I read through this, you're going to notice maybe some differences, maybe not. It depends what kind of translation you have. Second, you need to understand that because the book of Revelation is written in a lot of symbols, you need to understand those symbols, and most of those symbols come from the Old Testament. For example, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 19. That should be in your bulletin. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1. We're just going to look at one verse. Now, typically, if you're reading through Revelation or you're reading through the Gospels and Jesus says that I will be coming on a cloud, you think what? You think second coming. There's one problem with that. That's not how the Old Testament uses that. Now, in, uh, in this passage in Isaiah, in Isaiah 19.1, Isaiah is prophesying to Egypt, the nation of Egypt. He says the pronouncement concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. See that? And is about to come to Egypt. The idols, that's false gods, of Egypt will tremble at his presence. And the heart of Egyptians will melt within them. Jesus didn't show up in his second coming to Egypt thousands of years ago, folks. Often, when the Bible says God is coming or God is coming on the clouds, it doesn't mean second coming. It means coming in judgment. Because the chariot, the cloud was considered God's war chariot. If he's coming on a cloud, it means he's coming in judgment. Keep that in mind as we go through the book of Revelation and as you read through the book of Revelation. Now, this next one, it's all over the place, but all over the Old Testament, but I'll just pick one that's close. Isaiah 13. Here's another one. What you will see in the book of Revelation, and you'll see in some parts of the gospel, is Jesus says, on that day, the sun will be darkened, the moon will be darkened, and the stars will fall. And you look at that and you think, judgment day, right? Not necessarily. Not the judgment day. It's a judgment day. 13.6, Isaiah 13.6. I have to stand back a little bit or I have to put my glasses on. That makes me feel old. And you know it's getting bad because as I've told you before, this Bible that I just bought, it's a good Bible, New American Standard. It's a good Bible, but I bought it not because it's a great translation. I bought it because it was on sale and it was you know, there's regular print, large print, giant print. This is like billboard print, so I can read it without my glasses. 13.6, wail for the day of the Lord is near. And again, you go back to 13.1, Isaiah says he's talking about Babylon, judgment upon the ancient nation of Babylon. Wail for the day of the Lord, for the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fa fall limp, and every human heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame, red-faced. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Now look at this. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. So I will punish the world, or actually the Gentiles here, for its evil and the wicked for their wrongdoings. I will also put an end to, their, uh, to the audacity of the proud and humiliate the arrogance of the tyrants. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. He goes on, therefore I'll make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place as the fury of the Lord of armies in the day of his burning anger. 
See that? He says, you, Babylon, I'm coming on you. I'm coming to judge you. And it will feel like the sun has not risen, the moon is darkened, and the stars have fallen. What is he saying? He says, when I come in judgment upon you, it will be as if your universe has ended. Scholars call this decreation language, cosmic judgment language. And it's not necessarily second coming. The day of the Lord means judgment, not just final judgment. You've got to keep that in mind. Now, let's go to what I promised. Jesus' prophecies that Revelation picks up on. Luke 21. Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verse 5. Now, I have to set the stage here. Jesus is with his disciples in the temple, Herod's temple, Herod's great temple, white marble emblazoned with gold. People said that you could see it from miles away and that when the sun was at the right place, looking at it would blind you. They said it was one of the most beautiful structures that had ever been built. So in verse 5, and while some were talking, that's the disciples, about the temple, that it was decorated with beautiful stones and vowed gifts, he said, that's Jesus, as for these things which you were observing, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. So they, the disciples, asked him questions, saying, teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Okay, what is the question the disciples are asking? Jesus says the temple will be destroyed. The disciples ask when, and how will we know when it's about to be destroyed? Now, the problem is some of your Bibles will actually have a heading there saying that this is talking about Jesus' second coming. No, it is is not. And those little headings that the Bible publishers put in there, they're not inspired. Those are not from God. That's from the publisher. This is not talking about second coming. They're at the temple. The disciples say, this place is really cool. Jesus says, this place is going bye-bye. And they ask, when will it go bye-bye? How will we know it's about to go bye-bye? And so in verse 8, and he said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. Would it surprise you to learn that, in fact, just a few years after John writes Revelation, a number of people popped up in the desert and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. Verse 9, and when you hear of wars and revolts, do not be alarmed, for these things must take place first. But the telos, the goal, I know some of your Bibles say the end. It does not say end. It says telos. Telos is Greek for goal. Will not follow immediately. Wars and rumors of wars is how other places put it. What was going on? Jesus is saying that there will be, despite Nero, say, Nero saying from Rome that there is peace, he says there will be wars and rumors of wars. What happened in 66 AD is something you need to keep in mind. In 66 AD, while Nero is persecuting the Christians and the temple leadership is helping him out, war breaks out in Israel. A number of people, especially rabble-rousers from Galilee, begin to conduct guerrilla warfare on the Roman troops and on the temple priests. Now, 
it's not hard for you to guess why they were fighting the Romans. They hated the Romans. They were their overseers. Why were they killing temple priests? Because the people out in the lands outside of Jerusalem thought that the priests at the temple were Roman lackeys. And the reason they thought they were Roman lackeys was because they were Roman lackeys. Did you know the high priest of the temple could not assume his position unless Caesar approved it? Did you know that Caesar demanded they offer a sacrifice in the temple every day for him? Did you know that the high priest even then was not allowed to wear his priestly robes except once a year and it was kept under lock and key by the Romans? He had to have permission from Caesar to wear his priestly garments. Rome controlled the temple. And the people didn't like it. So you had, out in Galilee and so forth, a band of, of guerrilla fighters that they called the Sakari. The Sakari. Sakari means the dagger men. Because they would wear these robes, and inside the robes, just inside the robes, they would have two daggers, two knives. And just like something out of the Shawshank Redemption or prison, they would walk up behind the priest or a Roman soldier, take out the daggers, stab them a couple times in the kidneys or the liver or whatever, hide them back and disappear. And this went on. And so the temple leadership, who Nero really liked, said, we need some help. And so Nero said, you got it. And he began to send more troops in and more troops in. Well, that just, it's like throwing gasoline on the fire. And a full-fledged war broke out in Israel. Verse 10. Then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be massive earthquakes, and there were throughout the Roman Empire during this time. And in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrible sights and great signs from heaven. I'll come back to this in a minute. Have you had time to digest your donuts? Because it's going to get a little gross. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you, this is the disciples, and persecute you, turning you over to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors on account of my name. But it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. This is important when we get to Revelation. Because John is saying you're about to be persecuted for the next three and a half years, but be faithful. The, why? The testimony of someone suffering is always more powerful than the testimony of someone in comfort, is it not? If your friend sits with you over coffee and shares the gospel with you, that's a wonderful and blessed thing. But when a friend is lying in a hospice bed, wasting away from cancer and tells you the gospel, is it not more powerful? Jesus is telling the church about this persecution that has come. This is your opportunity to be my faithful witness. 14, so make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will provide you eloquence and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to oppose or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, and sisters, other relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And they did. As we said, John, uh, James, the brother of John, the one who's writing Revelation, killed. Jesus' own brother, James, killed. There were many others. And you will be hated by all people because of my name, and yet not a hair of your head will perish, but your endurance you will gain your lives. What does he mean by that? This is repeated in the book of Revelation. Jesus says you will be thrown into prison in Revelation 2. He says you'll be thrown into prison, you'll die, but you will not perish. What's he talking about? He's talking about the second death. But, verse 20, notice this, 
When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation, her destruction is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are inside the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are the days of punishment or judgment, so that all things which have been written will be fulfilled. Woe to those women who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus is not talking about Armageddon. He is talking about Jerusalem in 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., the rebel factions that had started the war with Rome retreated behind the walls of Jerusalem. They retreated inside of the temple. Jesus' words in Matthew, Mark, and Luke says that there will be false prophets and false messiahs. The Jewish historian Josephus, which, by the way, if you want to check it out, I love this one. This was actually made for homeschool high schoolers, but I like it. Josephus illustrated the Jewish war, his history about what happened. Um, Josephus records that within the temple there were those who claimed to be prophets saying that Israel would prevail over the Romans and there were those claiming to be messiahs. What did Jesus say would happen? But in 70 AD the Romans broke through. And leading up to that, life inside of the temple was horrific. Jesus says there will be famines and plagues. They ran out of food inside the temple. I told you this would be gross. They resorted to eating their dead children. And sickness broke out. And what Jesus is saying here in Luke, and he says it in Mark, and he says it in Matthew is, this is my judgment. Judgment will come upon Nero and Rome as well. In 68 AD, Nero was forced to commit suicide because... All of his governors and his army had rebelled against him, and they were hunting him, and they were on his heels. So he had a slave help him shove a dagger into his neck to commit suicide. From some accounts, the slave, because he knew Nero for a while, was not unwilling to help. And by some accounts, Nero, the narcissist that he was, Apparently, his last words were, oh, what an artist dies in me. Nero is dead three and a half years after persecuting the church. His line is ended. Rome is thrown into civil war. And two years later, Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed. And the Christian church would then have a generation of peace and grow. In Matthew 24, I, don't, I haven't got time to go all the way through it, but if you read through Matthew 24, it has a lot of the same stuff and more that Luke has. But he says a couple of things you need to take note of. In Matthew 24, 28, for example. Matthew 24, 28 As I said, Matthew writes, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, is what the NACB says. It's not right. It says, wherever the corpse is, there the eagles will gather. Why eagles? Guess what creature the Romans had on their standards and their shields? The eagle. And then, as Jesus is concluding this, he says in Matthew 24, 34, 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This generation. Jesus is saying this in 33 AD. And he says, this generation. All of what I've just said that will happen in this generation. Jews considered a generation to be 40 years. He says this in 33 AD. In 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed, just as he said it would be. Make sense? Now, I know what you're thinking. Now, I know what a lot of people online watching this are thinking. I don't look forward to the comments. You're telling me that Jesus ordered the destruction of Jerusalem, the death of hundreds of thousands of people? And the answer is yes. And the problem that we have is, one, we don't read our Bibles, and when we do, we unfortunately read it, again, as I've said many times, as if Jesus was a skinny little pacifist into yoga and herbal tea. And that's not true. We will see throughout Scripture the final judgment in which millions, perhaps billions, will be cast into hell is decided not by the Father, not by the Spirit, but by Jesus Christ. And he says himself in the Gospel of Matthew, many will say, Lord, Lord, I did miracles in your name. I cast out demons. I did signs in your name. He'll say, I never knew you. Away from me. It seems harsh, but you need to remember something. In Luke 10, what does Jesus say? He tells the disciples, he says, if they reject you, they reject me. And if they reject me, they reject the one who sent me. If you know your Old Testament history, what happens to Israel when they reject God? In the Old Testament, God says to Israel many times in the prophets, if you don't repent and follow my word, I will lift my shield of protection from you. The Assyrians will come. The Babylonians will come. The Egyptians will come. The Amorites will come. The Philistines will come. And they will destroy you, and I will do nothing. What is he saying here? Jesus is saying the temple leadership has rejected the church, tried to destroy it, in fact. So they have rejected me. They have rejected the Father. Judgment will come. We don't like to talk about judgment, but the problem is this. Again, as we'll see here in a couple weeks when we get to Revelation 2 and 3. Remember, I told you I didn't want to do this. And I told you you weren't going to like it. What we see in Revelation 2 and 3 is Jesus telling the church, and the reason he picked seven churches, because seven was the Jewish number for completeness, which means it's a message to all churches everywhere at all time. And what he tells the churches is this, get your act together and repent or else. I'm coming in judgment upon you, the church. He says, I will come and take your lampstand from you. That is his way of saying, I won't be at your church anymore. Do you want to attend a church Jesus refuses to attend? See, in our modern sensibilities, what we say is, because I've gotten this a lot of time, despite the fact that the Bible says that Dad and I, one of the things we are charged with is to warn you about false teachers. 
The Bible says we are to warn you about false teachers. And when we say this person is teaching falsely, many of you go, you shouldn't say that. That's not nice. You're being mean. You shouldn't say that. They're a church. It says so on their sign. Whoop dee doo. When we get to Revelation 2, you're going to see something you, if you've never read it, it's going to take you aback. Jesus actually tells one of the churches about these false teachers known as the Nicolaitans. He says, you got this on your side. You hate them. And Jesus says, and I hate them too. To the false teachers, Jesus doesn't go, well, they just have a different opinion than me. It's okay. They're good. They're nice people. Their kids play in a basketball league with us. They're nice. Jesus says, I hate them. Again, I told you you weren't going to like it. And as to judgment, we don't like it. That's how I'll wrap up. You need to understand that when God brings judgment, when Jesus brings judgment, when the Spirit brings judgment, it is a good and holy and righteous thing because God cannot do anything other than that which is holy or righteous. So if God brings judgment, it is right. Judgment is a good thing. God's judgment is a good thing. This week I was reading a book of biblical theology from a guy just down the street in Louisville, James Hamilton. He wrote this. The Bible is not about us. It's about the glory of God. Glory means honor, reverence, fame, majesty, worship. Similarly, while God's steadfast love is seen in salvation, it is also seen in judgment. When God judges, he enforces standards he himself has set, showing steadfast love to himself and the demands of his character. Further, when God judges, he shows steadfast love to his people. They are saved from their enemies when he judges those enemies. They are saved from their sins when God judges their sins. And they are saved from selfish, self-centered thinking when God's judgment crashes in upon the idolatry of the self and crushes it. Amen. The Bible says the Lord disciplines those he loves. I'll wrap up this way. Look, it has been... <laughs> It's been a month. <clears throat> Megan and I fighting with the IRS, work frustrations, just sickness, financial difficulties, problem after problem after problem. Ever since we announced on our Thanksgiving dinner that we wanted to adopt, Satan has just had a field day. Bless her heart. I hope she's not watching this as she gets on the plane because she's going to get mad at me. Honey, I love you. The other day, we got some good news. Megan was offered her dream job. Dream job from a great ministry. And as they explained it to her, oh, boy, oh, boy, she got so excited. And they wanted her. They went after her. One of her friends works for there, and they said, well, it's going to be a couple weeks before they get back to you. They called in 12 hours. They said, we want an interview now. We want you here now. And she got to the third interview, and they said, oh, one thing. We need you to relocate to either Boston, Philadelphia, or Washington, D.C. She walked down the steps, and I could see from her face, I thought, oh, no. 
She said, we can't leave, can we? I said, no. We can't leave, not yet. She cried. She said, I know. She said, I prayed, I know. We can't leave. For those of you in the Bold Academy, she said, I can't leave my girls yet. I said, I know. She had to turn down her dream job. Just when we thought we had some good news. Now we can bellyache about that and we can roll around and say, God, unfair, 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 unfair. Or we can try, and I'm trying, I'm not there yet, try to do what God commands us to do to ask, okay, why not? What do we need to learn? What does this spanking from the throne of heaven need to teach us? Because God's judgment, even when it hurts, even when it disappoints, is a good, holy, and righteous thing. Amen? Sorry I went long. I promise I won't next week. It's a little short. Revelation 1, 1 through 8 next week. That's it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for even the discipline we get, for the judgment that comes into our lives. May we be humble enough, grateful enough for the sacrifice that you made on the cross that we never complain, knowing that we have eternal life through faith in you. May we work hard for you and learn from your discipline and seek to serve you in any way, shape, or form we possibly can. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. God goes with you. See you next time, Lord willing. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.